This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Peabody Award-winning author Richard Rodriguez is joined in conversation by author and CIAS writing professor Carolyn Cook for an intimate look at the intersection of great public issues with intensely personal memory. The conversation was recorded on June 10, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Um, This is a great pleasure. The president of the university and uh, Lynn Kaufman and I uh, cooked up this idea of inviting Richard Rodriguez a couple of years ago. Um, It's been a dream of mine. It's one of the great pleasures of being the chair of an MFA program that you get to sit around and think, who would I like to talk to for an hour and um, invite them? So thank you all for being present and being here for this really exciting evening. I think Richard is one of the most inspiring writers I've ever encountered, and um, I I think you'll find so too. Um, So I thought we'd start just by asking Richard to go back in time, because this is not his newest book, but to read the preface uh, from Brown, which I think gives a great sense of the atmosphere of his work and also the, the, the content and the range of uh, the range of it. Okay, I don't read well, but I'm but I remember years ago uh, listening to a recording of T.S. Eliot read The Wasteland. <laughs> and I remember that I expected him to charge the lines with a certain drama. Instead, he read as flatly as, as you can imagine. And I, and I, I realized then that there are, there are, there is the idea among some writers that the line sounds itself, and that the writer only breathes it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to read this pretty flatly. This is from the beginning of Brown. I have not read this since maybe 20 years. Um, there, there's, you know, the wonderful short story essay by uh, uh, Luis Borges, uh, Borges and I. Uh, do you know it? Um, it's in a book of, called Labyrinths. Um, it's, and he writes about the fact that uh, uh, no one comes to see him, um, that everybody wants to come to see Borges, the writer, but no one wants to come t- to see me. They all, the graduate students come in Buenos Aires, they come and they, they want his opinion about this and that. And the writer has much to say but no one writes down what I say. It's this sense of the disassociation of the, the writer who has written these words with me now, who's encountering him mm. and feeling that I'm not that person. Mm. That he, he was, for some, in various ways, younger than I was, capable of a certain kind of energy that you're capable of than that I'm not. Um, I have more experience now and more, more, perhaps more cynicism than he has, and I probably wouldn't attempt this essay in the same way now. He's more reckless. And you go back in time and you see the different versions of of oneself as you write. There is this drama of the writer encountering himself. Anyway, Borges goes on with this, this conceit 
about the fact that he is not Luis Borges, but Luis Borges is the famous man. Everyone talks about him in the cafes. And, and um, I walk in late afternoon. My step is halting now. And sometimes the, the people will give way as I pass on the sidewalk. And then at the very end of the essay, he says, I do not know which of us has written these words. Uh, <laughs> it's really, mm. a, it's a very spooky sense mm. of, this, of, of this Richard Rodriguez, mm. who himself is photographed on the, on the cover. And this Richard Rodriguez, who has aged beyond him. Um, I'm not going to read it all because it, it would take too long, I think. I'll read, tell do, me when to stop. Do whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> this is from the preface to Brown. Brown is impurity. I write of a color that is not a singular color, not a strict recipe, not an, ex not an expected result, but a color produced by careless desire, even by accident, by two or several. I write a blood that is blended I write a blood that has complete freedom of substance and narrative. I extol impurity. I eulogize a literature that is suffused with brown, with illusion, irony, paradox, ha, pleasure. I write about race in America in hopes of undermining the notion of race in America. Brown bleeds through the straight line, unstaunchable, the line separating black from white, white, for example. Brown confuses. Brown forms at the border of contradiction, the ability of language to express two or several things at once, the ability of bodies to experience two or several things at once. It is that brown faculty I uphold by attempting to write brownly, and I defy anyone who tries to unblend me or to say what is appropriate to my voice. You will often find Brown in this book as a cement between leaves of paradox. You may not want paradox in a book, in which case you had better seek a pure author. Brown is the color most people in America associate with Latin America. Apart from stool sample, there is no browner smear in the American imagination than the Rio Grande. No adjective has attached itself more often to the Mexican in America than dirty, which I assume gropes toward the simile dirt-like, indicating dense concentrations of melanin. I am dirty, all right. In Latin America, what makes me brown is that I was made of the conquistador and the Indian. My brown is a reminder of conflict and reconciliation. In my, brown, in my mind, what makes me brown in the United States is that I am Richard Rodriguez, my baptismal name and my surname marry England and Spain, Renaissance rivals. North of the US-Mexico border, brown appears as the color of the future. The adjective accelerates, becomes a verb. America is browning. South of the border, brown sinks back into time. Brown is time. I'm going to read, I'm going to skip a few paragraphs. I think Brown marks a reunion of peoples, 
an end to ancient wanderings. Rival cultures and creeds conspire with spring to create children of a beauty, perhaps of a harmony previously unknown or long forgotten. Even so, the terrorist and the skinhead dream in solitude of purity and of the straight line because they fear a future that does, that does not isolate them. In a brown future, the most dangerous actor might largely be the cosmopolite, conversant in alternate currents, literature, computer programs. The cosmopolite may come to hate his brownness, his faculty, his indistinction, his mixture. The cosmopolite may yearn for a thorough religion, ideology, or tribe. Many days I left my book to wander the city, to, dis to discover the city outside my book was comically browning. Walking down Fillmore Street one afternoon, I was enjoying the smell of salt, the brindled pigeons, brindled light, when a conversation overtook me, parted around me just as I passed the bird's door window. Two girls, perhaps 16, white, Anglo, whatever, tottering on their silly shoes, talking to boys, the one girl saying to the other, his complexion is so cool, this sort of light, well, not that light. I realize my book will never be equal to the play of the young. Sort of reddish brown, you know. The other girl nodded, readily, readily indicated that she did know. But, but still, connoisseur number one sought to bag her simile. Like a sugar daddy bar, you know. That candy bar? When I began this book, I knew some readers would take race for a tragic noun, a synonym for conflict and isolation. Race is not such a terrible word for me, maybe because I am skeptical by nature, maybe because my nature is already mixed. The word encourages me to remember the influence of eroticism on history, for that is what race memorializes. Within any description of race, there lurks, lurks the possibility of romance. Hmm. Thank you. That's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> um, the great essayists of what I think of as our time, which I realize is a constantly shifting construct, um, include James Baldwin and Joan Didion, also an influence on you, I think. Yes, and, and also Sacramento. Yes, exactly. I grew up in Sacramento, and jo Didion was 10 years ahead of me. And she was the first one who, it sounds silly to say, but I remember reading in Holiday Magazine, which was a travel magazine in the 1950s, a big picture travel magazine. Joan Didion had a piece uh, on Sacramento. And it had never occurred to me that I lived in a city that was so flat that you could write about. Um, I thought that one lived, one had to live in a, Magnificent city, a complicated city, a city indeed, but not Sacramento. Uh, and that's what writers incidentally teach each other, the possibility that we are now living, a, we're, we are now in this moment living a novel. I think that's really what we're here for. And I think what we're really here for with Richard tonight, and I, I think that that preface to Brown so beautifully embodies what I'm hoping that we can consider, which is sort of the opposite of the thesis statement that we were taught to write as the beginning of an essay in high school, 
right? Um, what Richard just read is complex, lyrical, multi-layered, subversive. Um, and I'm, I'm just thinking again about the influence because Baldwin, Didion, uh, the third major influence on my work is you. And um, uh, Baldwin was dead. Didion is too old to travel, um, I heard from public programs. But you just live down the street. And, um, <laughs> So that's really great. And I think the other part about it is that you're, you're really a San Francisco writer, although you write in a much broader way. And I think of you as part of this grand curriculum that we're building here um, of, of the, the radical art history of San Francisco and what does it look like? What is it about? What is it talking about that wasn't possible to talk about a generation before? Yes. And this idea that you're building on your influences, like you looking at Didion and thinking, wow, you could write about Sacramento. I, I know that feeling so well. What will you tell? You know, what story is yours to tell? Well, I, you know, I, I, was, I did a piece today for the Washington Post uh, that took me a lot of energy and um, just an op-ed piece um, about uh, Hillary Clinton, the first, um, the first woman presidential nominee if she's elected the first woman, who succeeds the first black president, and so forth. This notion of being the first. Now, notice what I've just said, that what I'm interested in as a writer is a word. Hmm. It's not an idea. It's a, that's, it's a word brown. What is that word? What, you know, we are surrounded here by technologists who think they own the world. And the one thing that I think you should be aware of as a writer is that your competence, your genius, is in language, in making language sound, in making people laugh through language, make people cry, through, but ultimately in being a, a kind of uh, a magician of the word. And I spent the entire day thinking about that word mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. And one of the conclusions I reached was that, as, as, as Hillary Clinton said herself um, on Tuesday in Brooklyn, that um, to, I am the first, but many women have gone before me. Mm -hmm. In other words, to be the first, you have to be the last in some sense. Mm -hmm. You understand? Mm -hmm. And that paradox already was began to emerge in somewhere in the course of the day as I was writing, that to be the first African American president, mm -hmm. there had to be uh, there had to be people resisting Jim Crow. They had to be women uh, running for school districts. Uh, school boards in Alabama. There had to be uh, uh, police chiefs in in Georgia. There had to be a whole procession of regularity to make it possible for the conclusion to happen. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. um, so that that really was an investigation of a word, mm -hmm. and I, I I want you to seize on that as you're thinking about what you want to write. Remember that what you what you what your genius should be always focused on is. The word, how, what, what is it that I'm thinking about? If I had to put it into, a, into words, we say, you know. Tell me what you're writing, I would say. And then you would say, well, it's sort of, and then I would, I would I'd try to listen for the word that, that mm. would seize me as being somehow, you know, the, the way we, we often destroy the people we most love, you know. I'd, and then I would say, well, you know, 
tell me more about that word destroy, what it means to you and so mm. forth. Always remember the it begins with the word. Mm. And then it begin and then it moves to the consideration of words. How do I communicate it? How do I communicate what that shimmering word is doing to my mind? You understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, that's that's fantastic. I mean, the 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 sense of um, uh, the word, the word brown, um, and and the writing coming in essence from your thinking. Yeah. Um, I think it's almost as you describe it, a kind of bovine process yeah. that you're masticating this, you know, brown and, you know, and, and kind yes. of taking all the facets of, of this color, of this metaphor, of the, the literalness of it, the most abstract form. What I tell uh, college students all the time when I talk about writing, and in many, many cases, it's not writing classes, but for example, at the beginning of a school year, mm-hmm. I'll be at a university and they'll ask me to talk to the entire freshman class about writing. And what I'll tell them is that the task of writing a good essay is not getting to the conclusion, but is, is dramatizing how your mind got to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. That's what makes, an, that's what makes uh, ideas interesting mm-hmm. when we begin to realize that they exist in time. Mm-hmm. In other words, we didn't just happen on that idea it came as a result of this, and then that was a, a kind of confusion that led me to that, and so forth. As you begin to sketch out how you come to know, that's what an essay is, as, as everyone will tell you, S-A-A in French, to try, to, to attempt, comes from the, this French notion of struggling with, with something, not simply coming to the, oh, this is what the essay means, this last sentence. What the essay means is how you got there. You understand? And that drama of your mind working, of, of Virginia Woolf sitting at a window watching a moth die, mm-hmm. that's the process of thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's what the, the great essays are about. They are not about the conclusion. Um, you know, that I work as a journalist too, and for years the, 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 the training you get as a journalist is that your most important ideas are at the top, so that a busy commuter reading the, your, your story would... would um, would be able to read maybe the first paragraph and get a sense of what follows. And then an, indeed an editor cutting the piece for space would cut from the bottom. Because, but a great essay works the other way. The, a great essay has, its, has an organic connection between the beginning and the end because everything is time. And you now are living your ideas in time. You understand what I'm saying to you? Um, it's coming to you in time how you came to love that person, how you came suddenly, after many years of marriage, to fall out of love. That happens in time, you understand? And you have to give the reader a sense of how, how events happen over time. But one of the events that happens in our lives is how we come to know. Um, and and part, of, part of what you're talking about, I think it's interesting that the smartest people are often not the best writers because they already know everything. And um, I think beginning writers often uh, talk about, you know, sort of, well, here's the story I want to tell or here's the message I want to get across. 
And, um, you know, I would say, well, as politely as I can, like, I don't want to read your message. Like, I don't want to, re I read enough messages, you know. I want to read your sensibility. I want right. to be in the atmosphere of your brain. That's right. And this idea of, like, the act of writing as a form of thinking um, and, and a, a journey, an investigation, can you talk a little bit about how you do that, how you go there, and how it's different from just regular, you know, sometimes you think you're having really high quality thoughts, but you can't describe them and you can't write them down. So how do you get to the kind of high quality thought that gets, you know, masticated enough and actually translates through well, your Well, that notion of masticated enough means that um, the, the essays that I'm most proud of having written have taken me many, many months to write. Um, revision is crucial and constant. And some essays have taken almost complete rewriting <laughs> over and over again. Uh, the, the, there's a the second chapter of my first book, Hunger of Memory, is a chapter about the scholarship boy. That's a term in England used to describe working class kids who sort of uh, find themselves suddenly at a, at a, at a university or at a, at a school like uh, Eton or something. And they, they clearly are, are, are out of their, their milieu. Um, and uh, the scholarship boy is a figure in the, as I borrow the term from Richard Hogarth, who writes about it in a wonderful book called The Uses of Literacy. Um, he, he's writing about himself. And he mocks the scholarship boy as this kind of shabby boy in school who's always memorizing things because he doesn't know anything. And he comes without any confidence in the material. And he is just kind of blinkered, you know. He's like this all the time. Well, I couldn't... There was a section of that essay that I was writing. The essay is called The Achievement of Desire. It's a wonderful essay. I must, I'm, I'm writing about it. When I say it's a wonderful essay, I'm not praising me, I'm praising the, the man who wrote it, but it, what, I, <laughs> what he realized, what Richard Rodriguez realized, maybe in version 20, 30, version 35, was that if he changed the pronoun in, the, in a paragraph about himself and, and began to describe himself as a he, hmm. the paragraph could work because I that is I, as the author, could justify myself by describing the scholarship boy as a he. You understand? When I got that, when I got that discovery, it was so late in the writing of this essay that I had almost given up with it. But um, that's what it takes. It, it takes a long time to chew at the material. And to um, St. Augustine, um, whom I go to a, a lot because... For those of you who write memoir, I, I recommend Augustine because he writes about his life in that most crucial way for anybody who writes memoir as having a, this conflict within it. He was, a, a, you know, he's a rather um, robust young man sinning in every possible way. Um, and then he has this radical change in his life. And so the, the, the life already is being told from this perspective about that perspective. And already there is that tension between the two Augustines. Well, St. Augustine says somewhere that, that um, writing, uh, that, that singing at, when one prays is praying twice. When you sing and, and you pray twice, when you sing to God. 
Well, in some sense, writing about your life is living twice. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. That you're going to find, as you, those of you who are doing memoir, that, that, that when you really engage the memory of yourself, it is as though you are entering this, this, this second life. And the self is engaged with the self in this radical way. You start dreaming about things that you had long forgotten. You suddenly remember things that you hadn't remembered for many, many years. But this resurrection of, of the past comes uh, with, this, with this power that it feels sometimes that you are back there, that you are reliving it, that you are angry again, that you're happy again, whatever it was. That it, that it takes that kind of intensity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's, that's such an interesting comment. I'm thinking about uh, seeing Lynn's new play the other night, a reading at the Mill Valley Library. It's a new play called Exposure. And are we allowed to say sort of who it's inspired by? Uh, yes. Uh, kind of inspired by the life of Sally Mann, the photographer, and her relationship to her children, who she, you know, used as her material and photographed, and, and was, you know, very, very controversial. Um, but this idea of, we were talking about, do you use your life um, in your work? And I was saying, I have nothing but my life. I don't have an imagination. <laughs> but I write fiction, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's still all my life. And Lynn was saying, well, I don't use my life. I find someone else's life and explore my questions through their life. So I think one of the things I'm very interested in uh, sort of giving permission to is this idea of breaking down some of the barriers between what we think of as literary fiction and memoir and autobiography and lyric poetry and really thinking about what is it that you can masticate on, you know, usefully, what is it that you can learn and discover based on things you already know, images, ideas that feel central to you? Yeah, well, one thing you can do with your life is that you can make it into a work of art. And that's one thing that experience, when you experience it Mm. uh, immediately, you don't realize that you're living a work of art. Mm. But in writing it, uh, you realize its possibility, that you're living a tragedy, that you're living a comedy, that you're living a farce. Um, And that as as that becomes clear, this kind of writing of oneself is really quite amazing, you know, that you, 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 you clarify your own experience. I've never understood why writers go to see shrinks because we, <laughs> the, the process of writing is yeah. itself a kind of self-description that other people normally require, you know, a, an auditor to, 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 to allow. We do it all, ourselves all the time, you know. And, and I, there was a wonderful man in my building some years ago who wanted me to go in analysis um, and I said I couldn't because I would stop writing. I wouldn't trust that that experience, except as a kind of cannibalization, cannibalization of my writing process, which is the re- I'm listening to myself live. Hmm. You understand? Hmm. Um, well, you get into the habit of it, and then you become more interesting than anybody you know. <laughs> John Updike famously said, my life is trash. It's just what's left over from, you know, the stuff I've used up in writing. And I always love that idea that, you know, you're sort of living so that you can write about it. And <laughs> I, I've, I've confessed before to students that some of the most profound experiences of my life, some of the most ecstatic experiences, there's some part of my mind that's thinking, how do I say this? You know, do you yeah. ever do that? Yeah, all the time. Instead of living, yeah. Yeah, and... and 
And th there is a sense too, you know, I, I wrote my first book about growing up a scholarship boy and um, it became a very controversial book because what I say about say affirmative action, my decision to leave the university in protest against affirmative action, uh, my, uh, my skepticism about bilingual education, um, these, these weren't simple arguments. I mean, the bilingual education for me, the most important part of it was the distinction between public and private language again. You know, this is not what the politicians were talking about. The politicians were talking about, you know, giving children access to their, to to Spanish or whatever their home language was, and I keep saying in the in the essay, this is an essay called Aria, that your home language is private language, mm. is the language of two in Spanish, and that that when you go to the classroom, you are introduced to a different kind of language, a different language indeed, the language of usted, mm -hmm. which is the language of public and strangers, um, and that many poor kids never learn how to speak publicly, hmm. uh, which is a great failure of education. And, but we think that, well, if, they, if, they, if we give them eubonics or Spanish, that somehow that, if we bring the, what they already know into the classroom, they will feel confident of it. What they must feel confident of is their ability to speak to strangers. And that is something that middle-class kids learn more easily than I think. In any case, um, what did you say to me to encourage that thought? Uh, <laughs> in any case. Can I ask another question? Yes, of course. Um, I have so many questions to ask you. <laughs> so little time. Um, uh, uh, thinking about, uh, at times, your prose is so dense. It's, um, it's so lusciously dense with life and experience. And I think the revising process, I mean, I know how you do it because... Um, because I do it. I'm, I'm very influenced by it. And I find also sometimes it gets very austere. You know, it's sort of this building up of the interesting adjective or the one that subverts the noun. And sometimes it's about pairing away. And um, I, I wanted you to talk a little about that. And I just have a couple of examples of uh, sort of a decision you made to pair away to describe your father and thinking about family life and the whole argument of affirmative action, which is very controversial. And yet it's immediately such a complex argument when you talk about it. And talking about the parents believing that English is going to transform the person. And um, you describe your father in two lines. And I think in those two lines, I know as much about your father, I'd love to know your father, but as much as I need to know, to know him as well as I would know any human. And the first line is, um, my father left Mexico as one would leave a cold room. And the second line is, whenever my father saw a baby, he would say, poor baby. It's like, do you, do, do you need to know anything? I mean, it, it's like a whole person has just been rendered. And I think, like, I have no patience, almost no patience for a lot of contemporary fiction, because I feel like if one can't be as concise as that, and Lynn comes really close, she's really concise, why bother? You know, I'm busy. I don't have time to read, you know, a lot of bullshit. I really don't. Yeah. And, and I don't mind reading something Baroque and built up and filled with bizarre, interesting subversions of a sentence. That, that, though, I mean, I must tell you, those of you who plan on a career as a writer, that the appetite for dense prose is, is diminishing in our time. And I don't find readers patient with difficult prose, you know, and... and um, 
I, I, I do sometimes, I admit, read the Amazon reviews. And usually, because my books only survive because they're assigned in classrooms. That's, I mean, that's true. I have, that's my immortality, a classroom uh, syllabus. But um, these kids will be presented with a book like Brown, for example. Mm -hmm. And the book doesn't allow for a speedy journey. Uh, it keeps holding you. And then they keep saying, well, I don't know what these words mean. We don't use these words. And this, this guy is showing off. You know, he's, he's try, he writes an elaborate prose that, that I, I simply cannot master. What is he saying, you know? Um, and everything in the culture is toward the, miniature, the miniaturization of, of ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, are you for it or against it? Mm -hmm. are you, who are you voting for? Everything has a kind of, and there's these crazy words that float across the horizon now. I've been watching this word iconic float across. <laughs> it, it floats. Today I heard because, because uh, Muhammad Ali at his funeral, everybody kept referring to him as an icon or iconic. And I thought, well, there it goes again, you know, <laughs> iconic. And I just, it drives me mad that the, the, how few words we have mm -hmm. as a society. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that if you introduce a word that no one has heard before, they say, oh, show off, you know, that sort of thing. Well, I write for people who like complicated language. Mm -hmm. And I used to apologize for that because I grew up in a house without books, always apologizing for the fact that I was speaking and no one understood what I was saying. Mm -hmm. And so I always learned as a, as a boy to always end a sentence with, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I think a lot of scholarship girls and scholarship boys grow up with that sense that no one knows what they mean because none of us were surrounded by people who did. Mm -hmm. And so there is always that sense that I'm writing a prose that no one understands. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a, one of the things I wanted to tell you, and this is an urgent thing, is that if you really want to be a writer, and this is not fooling around this weekend, uh, you have to be a reader. There is no other way to do it. Um, and that means that, you know, when you know that somebody has a, a play, you go see it. When, you, when somebody tells you that they're doing a poetry reading, you go hear it. Sometimes with an adversarial sense that if you recognize, boy, that guy got something there, or she got reviewed in The New Yorker, and, you know, um, there's this kind of this feeling that feels like envy that I'm feeling, because I'm as good as she is. But nonetheless, what reading each other's prose does is it allows you to know what, it's, what the possibilities are out there. There's a passage, D.H. Lawrence, for me, particularly the short stories, but D.H. Lawrence in one or two of the novels, particularly uh, 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 Sons and Lovers, which I think is a great, great novel. Lawrence was the son of a coal miner, and his mother was a school teacher, and already noticed the drama, okay? And there's a scene in, in, in Sons and Lovers, listen to that title, Sons and Lovers, in, and, uh, in which Lawrence, the boy, the Mellers, is over here by the door. And his father, this big, thick, muscular man, uh, who's a miner, has come into the room and is looking at Lawrence's books and picks up one of Lawrence's books with his, with his hands and the boy is watching. And, and suddenly the boy edges out because he doesn't want to intrude on that scene of incomprehension. Mm. Well, there is a passage in the middle of that novel. It happens in three sentences. Mm. 
And if I, I've had many friends of mine who have read that novel and have missed it. It happened so fast. Lawrence's mother has a quarrel with the father. And uh, it's a rather violent quarrel. It's on a, it, they, they live in the Midlands in this small house in a, in a mining town. And, they, and she's fought with him. And she goes, she leaves the, the, she leaves the room and goes out to the garden. Listen to this. She goes out to the garden and she's standing there weeping. And in the middle, in the middle of that sentence, she suddenly starts breathing in the sense all around her of spring in the garden. There is this, 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 this lush reminder of, uh, in, of, of, of this nature that is so powerful that it has the potency of sexuality. And at the very moment that she's weeping for this beautiful man, this muscular man that, that now has turned into a bitter, middle-aged, angry man, the moment she knows that she has lost the man that she married, she starts breathing it in all over again. You understand? And I thought, I'm, I'm reading this at 12 years old in Sacramento, California. <laughs> and I thought, I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know you could do this in literature. I didn't know you could. And I've always remembered Lawrence and the examples. He, sh he just does things that are so, when he, he has a woman um, brushing down a horse that is, it's told plainly, but it is plainly a sexual experience. Mm. And I didn't know you could do that. I didn't. I, I, I did, I'm not sure we can do it, but, but, but it's, you know, writers give each other permission. Mm. You understand? Mm -hmm. you, oh, I remember how she did that, you know. With the Didion giving me permission to imagine Sacramento. Mm -hmm. Lawrence giving me permission to imagine my father reading my books or holding my books. That becomes a kind of, um, a kind of what shall I say, a gift that one writer gives another. If you are not reading, you'll never be a great writer. You just won't. Because you're missing, you're missing the, the tutelage that writing requires. You need to know what other writers are doing and what other writers have done. Even if what you want to do is to do it better or to undo what they did and to write a better book. You understand? And then you get to a stage where, you know, you're, the, the writers you love, like Lawrence or... Or Didion. I used to, you know, I, I still say that Didion, the Sacramento LA essayist, is miles ahead of Didion, the novelist. And I become sort yeah. of a Didion critic, you know, because I know her so well. Or, or, I, 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 or with James Baldwin, you know, that I knew Baldwin so well as a boy. Boy, did I read his work. And when he leaves, the, you know, America in the 50s and the 60s was undergoing this tumult of the black civil rights movement. And there was this procession wending its way through Memphis and Birmingham, uh, We Shall Overcome, and every night it was on television. And it was like this, this novel you were watching every night in the Huntley Brinkley Report. And I read that James Baldwin had moved to France and he was writing movie criticism. 
And I remember feeling about my Jimmy Baldwin, who I first experienced with a book called Nobody Knows My Name, that he betrayed me. It became that personal, you know what I mean? And that, that one's relationship to the writers who are your, your parents, who are your, your kin, become, they can betray you. Or you can feel, oh, that wasn't a very good book that they gave us. Uh, I wanted something better from her. That sort of thing. Hmm. Read. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. If you're not reading, it's not happening. It will not happen. And if you don't like to read, then I don't know why you expect us to read your books. I think people um, love to uh, criticize MFA programs and uh, writers who teach as if, you know, we were all making our livings from our books. Um, but I, I think one of the things I feel people in MFA programs do is they become really good readers. And um, they're reading as writers and they're, they're discovering, you know, because I don't think we have to read everything. We can put a lot aside yeah. for ourselves. Yeah. And I think, um, uh, you know, a lot of MFA programs, I, I went to Columbia and I often tell the story of uh, sort of being told that, you know, I better read Raymond Carver because that's what we're doing here now. We're <laughs> doing minimalism as if like we were a machine, you know, we're yeah. going through a yeah. conveyor belt of yeah. minimalism yeah. and they're onto something else now. Um, but I think the idea of finding your own people and the people who made your work possible for you Didion, making Sacramento a subject, and then opening up the idea of what are the subjects that aren't being written. Yeah. But or indeed, in what it, you know, Didion was writing about owning the land in Sacramento, and her grandmother was mm -hmm. selling the land, mm -hmm. and my family was moving to Sacramento, mm -hmm. and it was, it was, we were completely the opposite. <laughs> and it was in that sense of being the opposite yeah. that I had, that I was. She forced the, 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 that dialectic on me, in other right, words. Right. And she writes this essay by saying, there's this place called the Sutter Club, which is the social club down by the Capitol. And she said, you know, there are people moving to Sacramento now who have no idea what the Sutter Club was. <laughs> well, I didn't have any idea what the Sutter Club was, Joni. And she has this pretense to be this upper class, you know, old Sacramento. What, old Sacramento means she was there for two generations. Right, you know? right. So you get into this argument with your, your writers that right. is, I think, very healthy. And it's a conversation, right? Yeah. I agree. I remember a line and Joan did. I'm, I'm like you. You know, I grew up very working class, and um, but, but sort of complicated and very insecure about, you know, my place in the world. And I just so identify with that story. And I remember reading an essay by, by Joan Didion in which she talks about the Reagans uh, when Reagan became governor. And she said they were the kind of people who had a wet bar in the living room. <laughs> And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, you can't. Okay, note to self, you know, no wet bars. <laughs> no wet bars. <laughs> but then you sort of, you sort of um, uh, redeploy your experience or, or revise your experience to kind of think about, you know, what, what, what you have to offer. And, and I think those vivid moments like you describe in, um, in Lawrence, and maybe you could talk for just a moment about uh, kind of accessing those moments for yourself, that idea of the complex but subtle uh, reaction to life that's living, and yet it's being recollected in the writing moment. It might not yeah. even be conscious. And how well, do you I, you do know, that? I just think that the, the, the inhibition all of us feel as writers is that we don't trust the, the, the importance of the experiences that we know. And then every once in a while we will read something and we will say, well, that I should have written that essay because I, or I should have written that story because I've done it. There is in the beginning of uh, James Agee's *Death in the Family*, 
his his novel about uh, the death of his father, is it? Yeah. Um, this recollection of Knoxville, Tennessee, what is the year? Something like 19, let's say 1933, on a summer night. And there is nothing that happens in the, in the eight pages of that recollection that none of, that, uh, that any of us have not also experienced. The, the twilight begins to descend. There are men in white t-shirts watering the, their lawns. The kids are running in and out of the house and the screen doors are slamming sh shut behind them. The dog is barking up the street. The, it cannot be more, more prosaic. It cannot be more common. And yet what makes James Agee a writer is that he realizes the importance of this event, of this, <laughs> of this summer night. And the rest of us say, well, you know, nothing special happened. I walked down California Street and and I walked by the Jewish Community Center and there were these kids walking by and then I walked home. Nothing happened. Well, James H. E. would say, everything happens. And if you are a writer, you're always zoning in on everything that is going on around you as possible because it is holy. Hmm. Everything in your life is holy. I don't care what religion or non-religion you have, it is filled with mystery. And when you understand that, the barking dog is part of the fabric of, of the best novel that you've already experienced. And then you, when you let Tolstoy take it from you, you, <laughs> say, you say, well, gee, I don't know. I, just, I guess I just didn't realize that I was living an important life. Hmm. Realize it. Hmm. Because that's that arrogance, that sense of, the, of, 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 of humility that life is is treating you so, so so grandly as to give you so much to to think about and to experience. That is what writing in, engages. And then you're giving other people uh, permission that's to right. look at their own at yeah, their own. Yeah, you're giving other people permission to listen to the dog. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. once they that becomes this this progression, yeah. you know that um, you begin to read your you begin to read. The, the world as a, as as literature helps you read it. Mm -hmm. I remember I did a piece for a newspaper uh, on the week after September 11th. Um, I did a piece on. I thought, what is one going to say about September 11th? I did a piece on uh, September 10th, hmm. and uh, the Baltimore Orioles lost that night by hmm. a score of four to three. And I went through a whole list of of the mundane. In Cleveland, there was a, a late afternoon rainstorm and so forth. And it was where I got that, and I acknowledge it in the piece, was from Our Town, hmm. the Thornton Wilder's play. That whole notion that, you know, the, your mother making uh, eggs downstairs is so momentous to this dead girl hmm. who, who listens to the, to the sparkle of the grease and the egg downstairs. And she says, you know, how can, how do we, how, you know, how do we live with that, the power of that sound, the sparkling egg, hmm. the snapping of the, of the grease? You have to be a saint to, to, to absorb <laughs> its meaning until you lose it. And you walk into your house and there is your family after everyone is dead. And you watch your mother make uh, scrambled eggs. And then you realize that that was an extraordinary 
extraordinary moment. Mm. And it was just something that happened. But if you're a writer, you know its importance. That's what I'm saying. It's kind of a wonderful piece of advice to formally end on that uh, let's keep going toward this magical uh, conclusion. There's something we haven't seen before. Thank you all for coming, and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.